Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. I enjoy being able to say good morning again instead of good afternoon. I like having service in the morning. I, this morning we're going to continue on our series called Follow Me, or Follow Jesus, and um, this morning's passage is John 15, 1 through 8. It's the passage that is familiar to many of us who've spent years in the church about Jesus' teaching on how he is the vine and we are the branches. And in fact, we've taken the name of our youth group, The Vine, from this passage. So we thought it would be wonderful to have our youth group remain in service with us. And just get one more reminder, Pastor Frank does a great job of laying that foundation again and again, what the meaning of that name is. I'm going to give them one more reminder of the significance of that name, the vine. And so we thought it would be appropriate to have a member of our youth group read the scripture for us. So I'm going to invite Zachary Kim to come and read for us. I am the vine, and my father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear much more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear much fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he is that bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone that does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown away into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words, abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done to you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so to prove to be my glorified disciples." Thanks, Zach. As Zach was reading, it struck me how wonderful it is to have young eyes. He had the Bible down here in small print, and he's just like reading. It's amazing to me. That's, That's awesome. This is a really packed passage. There is really no way to do full justice to everything that's said here. Uh, You guys may know that each Sunday afternoon or sometimes Monday, sometimes Tuesday, uh, we get out a sermon recap email in your inbox. And a lot of energy and time is spent on those recaps trying to create a readable version of what is preached. This Sunday, I'm going to drop in some I don't know if this is going to be a good thing for you or not, but some bonus content, stuff that didn't make it into the sermon, but is important for you to be aware of. And so that'll be at the bottom of that recap email. I hope that you will take 15 minutes each week just to pause and read that, because I think it will help strengthen your grasp on what you hear on Sunday mornings and even give you invitation to talk with people around you uh, processing together. This is a really loaded passage, and it's it's really important we are careful how we read it, how we understand what Jesus is actually saying here. I want you to think back to the gospel presentations you heard growing up. Maybe it was something like the Four Spiritual Laws tract that many people receive from members of Campus Crusade. 
Uh, I, I was saved hearing a gospel presentation very similar to what's contained in the four spiritual laws. The idea that um, God has a good plan, a wonderful plan full of benefits for our lives, but that sin has cut us off from that plan and those benefits, and that Jesus is the only answer to deal with that sin, and so Jesus was sent and he died for my sake. And that's true. I don't really have any problem with that message per se. But I'm, I want you to notice, if you think back to the gospel presentations you probably heard, maybe even the one through which you were saved, how much of the focus of that gospel is on personal peril and personal benefit or gain. I heard the gospel presented this way, that I'm in big trouble, and it's a trouble I made for myself, and if I were smart, I would want to be out of that trouble, if at all possible, And then a promise was held up of great personal gain that there is a solution for that trouble and that it's presented freely by the hand of God. And all that, again, I affirm. I think that is, at the heart, the gospel message. But if we stop there, the resulting Christian life that follows can very easily become a very self-centered endeavor. If you come to Christ entirely driven by fear of personal peril and desire for personal gain, that only tells a part of the story of the gospel. It's true that the gospel has tremendous individual implications for us. And we have to come to Christ on our own. We don't come in large groups and just get saved in a buy one, get one free kind of deal. You do have to come before God yourself. And that's real and biblical. But beyond that individual dynamic, the gospel, properly understood, sits in a much bigger story. And if we don't understand that bigger story, our own personal dynamic will not really make sense. I watch a lot of war movies, and one of the things I love about war movies is it's this massive story of conflict on a global or international scale, but in it are millions of stories of suffering, sacrifice, betrayal, love, heroism, all these little granular stories that are so compelling, but you can't really just look at those stories. They are always set against the backdrop of this huge conflict that's going on. And to appreciate that little story... You've got to see the bigger story in order for it to make sense. What's the bigger story of my salvation story and yours? What is the bigger story in which I find myself coming to Christ for hope? When God first made people, he gave human beings two gifts. He gave many gifts, but two very important gifts. One of them was the gift of his image. Now, if you have, you genetically bear the image of your parents, most likely, right? And maybe for some of you, are like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Not a, my kids probably lament that my Oompa Loompa height was passed down through the genes. But you get that image, and if your God is a perfect God, his image in you is a great gift. So he gave that to us, and he said, I want you to be a carrier of that image. Multiply my image in the world as you live under my rule. And then he gave us another gift that's equally important. He gave us a gift of freedom to decide for ourselves whether that's what we would do or not. 
I'm grateful that he took the risk of that particular gift because I don't want to live in a world where everything's good because there's no other choice. I'd rather live in a world where there is choice and the goodness has great meaning. Well, as that freedom was used by people over and over to choose to worship other things and themselves rather than God, sin covered the world. Injustice, violence, betrayal covered the world. And that image of God in human beings was becoming harder and harder to see. It was distorted. And as a result of our fall, all creation was fractured as well. And so God raised up a man named Israel who became a family and then became a nation. And he called them to be his special representatives to the world. They weren't most favored nation status just because God liked them most of all. It wasn't like having a favorite kid. He's saying, you are my designated representatives to the world to advance my kingship as you live under my rule and powered by my presence, my power, my love. That was God's intent for Israel. They were never supposed to enjoy their status, but to use it to be God's representatives in the world. But again and again, given the same gift of responsibility and freedom, that freedom was repeatedly used to rebel against the very God who'd made them and commissioned them. So Israel failed in this mission. The result was exile. And it was a physical exile where they were cast away from their land. And, you know, many of us who are immigrants, our parents probably felt like voluntary exiles. They would often talk about how they left the land that they knew to come to a strange place where they don't know the language, the smells, the food, the culture. And it's hard to be cast out of the place where you live and belong and feel at home. But it was also a spiritual exile as they were removed from the presence and the favor of God. A barrier was erected between human beings and God as a result of the use of freedom to rebel against God over and over. That may be hard to think about, but that's how every relationship works if it's a real relationship. You can't violate a relationship repeatedly and expect nothing to change between you and that other person. That's nonsense. That's not how any real relationship works. And so the relationship between God and human beings was fractured by the abuse of freedom to choose what was destructive and self-destructive over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, the vine imagery is used very often to symbolize Israel, God's people. In fact, very often in the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as his vineyard, my people. In other words, to belong to Israel was to be planted in the vineyard of God and belong to him. So you could say, I am one of God's people. I am part of his vineyard. But Israel fell short of that role so that in effect, they were like a failed vine, which God had planted that did not do what it was meant to do. John 15, 1 then, as we pick up our passage, by the way, there's a picture of exile I forgot to show you. Jesus makes a very crazy statement, at least to the Jewish ear. He says, I am the true vine. In every place, at every level where Israel failed to be the vine God planted, I'm succeeding. From now on, 
If you want to become the people of God, it is no longer about being a part of the nation or the family of Israel. It is about belonging to me. Think about a person who others think is just a man saying something this provocative. It's one of the reasons he got in so much trouble with the religious authorities. He made statements like this that to us now, 2,000 years later, sound so trivial. But back then, they were revolutionary. And what he's saying is through me and what I'm going to do, that wall that's erected between God and human beings is going to be shattered. The curse of exile will be broken and people will finally have the opportunity to return to God. You no longer had to belong to a people group, but you had to belong to Jesus. The difference between a vineyard and an overgrown field is this. If you look at these two pictures, the overgrown field and the vineyard are both places where plants grow. They thrive. They grow like crazy. But a vineyard is a place where it is carefully tended and intentionally produced so that there is fruit that is born on those plants. Any plant that is not part of the fruit-bearing endeavor is removed so that a vineyard is an orderly, structured, intentional place that has a purpose and a field is just a place where things grow the way they want to. And they grow as rapidly, as wildly as they like. For a while, my backyard was more like the overgrown field. I spent an entire day cutting down weeds that had become trees. Do any of you guys have weed trees? I didn't know that weeds become trees, like bark and everything. It was hard work. So a vineyard has a purpose. It's not just a place where growth is celebrated, but the growth has the intent of producing a harvest. And in this sense, God was disappointed with the vineyard he planted in Israel Because the one who plants and cares for a vineyard has the right to expect some fruit to come out of all that labor. In Isaiah 5, 7, God says this through the prophet. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness But instead, he heard cries of violence. It's like planting a garden and three months later you visit hoping to find giant zucchinis and cabbage and all that. And what you find instead are tons of weeds overgrowing the place. Things you didn't want to see grow are everywhere and the things you'd hope to find are nowhere to be seen. This is the heart of disappointment with which God anxiously looked at Israel and said, I put you on the earth, I gave you everything. And I wanted to see something happen, and again and again I looked, and I didn't see what I longed to see. These words are spoken to Israel, but before we sit in judgment over Israel, I want to say I think many times over history, God may have said the very same things over his church around the world. Hosea 10.1 adds this, and this is just a small selection of the many prophetic passages in the Old Testament where God expresses his disappointment with the vineyard he'd planted in Israel. How prosperous Israel is. A luxuriant vine loaded with fruit. But the richer the people get, the more pagan altars they build. The more bountiful their harvests, the more beautiful 
their sacred pillars. He's not disputing that Israel grew. They kept growing. Things increased and expanded in their lives, but none of the things that were growing were the things God wanted to see grow among them. There was movement, there was progression, there was elevation, growth, but the growth was all wrong in the eyes of God, and yet it was celebrated among the people. The bigger they grew, the further they drifted from their God. It's one of the reasons why when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to preach, especially in this passage, he puts such a heavy emphasis on bearing fruit that pleases God. Because what he wants to see produced from God's people in the church is a different fruit than what God saw growing in Israel. In John 15, 5, Jesus says this famous verse, very high likely many of us have memorized this verse at some point in our lives. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What Jesus says is the key to bearing fruit, spiritual fruit that God wants to see, is to abide in him. It's the same way that a branch on a vine is attached to the main trunk line. See, fruit grows on the branches, not on the trunk. Have you ever come up to an apple tree and seen apples growing on the trunk of the tree? That never happens, right? The fruit grows on the branches, but the branches, while they have the ability to bear the fruit, cannot do it unless they're connected to the trunk of the tree. So the trunk plays a very, very important role. The branches draw needed nutrients and water from the trunk so that even though they're the ones who bear the fruit, you cut them off from the trunk and all that potential is lost. And what you end up with is dead wood. What Jesus says is if you want to bear the kind of fruit in your life that delights the heart of the God who made you, the key to that is to remain connected to Jesus. What do I mean when I say connected to Jesus? What did Jesus mean when he said abide in him? I think there's a lot of meaning there. I'm going to give you at least two senses of that. One is a real connection. I'm not talking about just feeling connected, an emotional, sentimental intimacy with Christ. That's important, and I think that's a big part of it. But I'm not just talking about a feeling connected to God, but of truly being connected to God. When I was in web development years ago, we used to take, you know, our, our bosses would say, I want you to do a total makeover of the website, revamp everything, but before you go live, I want to test it. So we'd do that. We'd make all the links, dead links, just to, with internal documents, and we'd put the whole website on a CD-ROM. Do you remember those? And then we'd give it to our boss. They'd run the website. It would perform almost exactly like it's supposed to online, but it's actually not connected to anything. It's all internal. So if you filled out one of the forms on that mock website you fill, and you hit send, it would feel like the real thing. It would go nowhere because it's not connected to anything. It's just a mimicry of the real thing. And what Jesus is saying is he's not interested in the kind of fruit we strain to produce, but he's interested in the kind of fruit that is the irrepressible outflow of a life flowing, coursing through us. It's like this. It's like the difference between someone you know is really working hard at managing their anger. I mean, God bless them. The effort is worthy, right? I'm glad to see people trying. 
But you know that, that person, you, you offend them, you just watch them go, it's okay. It's okay, don't worry about it. I'm not upset. And you could tell, thank goodness they're not in a rage, but that is a real product of effort. But there are other people you know who the most horrible offense is done to them. They're just like, it's all right. And you look at their eyes, you're like, come on, show me that, show me that you're faking it. And it looks real. Do you know what I'm talking about? The kind of people who don't just anger manage, but they have a real peace inside. This kind of unshakable, weird stability that others can't understand. That's the kind of fruit Jesus is talking about. You know, another example is there are people who when they smile, it's a smile that never reaches the eyes. You know what I mean? It's like this. It's kind of scary when you see someone smile big with their mouth and zero with their eyes. It actually is worse than no smile at all. And there's a difference between the person who knows how to smile and who has joy. Like a real joy, not a joy that's rehearsed or practiced or developed, but a joy that flows out of something inside. And what Jesus is saying is he's not interested in the kind of fruit that is scotch taped to our branches that is produced by effort, but he's saying the key to bearing fruit is not trying to bear fruit. It is remaining connected to a trunk line that brings everything you need for that life to come out of you. I don't picture apple tree branches going... They don't try to make apples. It's not like, oh, come on. It just sits there. Oh, look. Apples. I guess that's what happens when DNA, water, sunlight, and nutrients flow all through me. Is look what comes out of me is apples. That's the kind of fruit which Jesus is describing. It's not the careful, cultivated personality of the disciplined Christian. It's a real life flowing inside of us that just bursts out into the visible realm. So that's one element of abiding. It's a real connection to Jesus. So that in times of upheaval, you actually experience real peace. You don't just say it's going to be okay. Somewhere deep in your heart, you believe him. You believe it. doesn't mean you have no emotions. It means there's someone else carrying the heavy weight with you and for you. But there's another element of abiding that's just as important. And that's the remaining over time, the commitment part of it. Not just the connection, but that commitment is so vital to a real lasting abiding relationship. I was thinking this past week a lot about relationships in my life. And there are some relationships, you know, there's two kinds of relationships that end. One ends in trauma or some sharp incident that just says, hey, you know what, I can't do this with you anymore. And another kind that just kind of ends because we just sort of stopped. There's no conflict. It's just everybody mutually forgot each other and they drifted apart. I don't know why, but I was really weighed down by those relationships in my life. I was looking back through my my old photos this week. And seeing some of the people who are such a huge part of my week, uh, you know, like people that I did a lot of fellowshipping, hanging out with, who are just not in my life anymore. You, do you have people like that? It wasn't like you got into a fight or anything. You just sort of both forgot each other. And there used to be a lot of hanging out in the backyard, and they just sort of disappeared. And that's the nature of relationships, is that no matter how deeply, closely, intimately they relate for a season, the abiding which Jesus is describing is not a seasonal relationship, but one that lasts for the rest of our lives 
because we are both committed to maintaining it. These two things speak to the heart of what we all yearn for in any relationship, isn't it? It's what we wanted with children when we had them. It's what we wanted or still want from a mate when we have them. It's what we want with our friends or our parents or our siblings. We yearn for this kind of deep, meaningful, real connection and a commitment that lasts longer than a season, something that goes beyond temporary. It's what we all want. It's what we so rarely experience. And what Jesus invites us into is a relationship with him where he can at least assure you of this. If you remain committed to him, he will never flake out on you. There have been many one-sided relationships in my life where I poured in and got nothing back. Poured in, got nothing back. And I bet you I've done that to other people too. But this is never going to be a one-sided relationship. To abide in Jesus is to experience him abiding with you. Jesus says then, and this is really important how we understand this. You abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. The absence of fruit is not a sign that the branch is bad, but that it's disconnected from the source of everything needed to bear that fruit. It's a sign that somewhere upstream, that branch is disconnected from the rest of the plant. It's missing something critical. And so what he says later on, is, here, here's the point. The bearing of fruit is not a test of whether you're a good person or not, whether you're a good Christian or not, whether you've worked hard enough or not. It is a measure of one thing and one thing only, the extent to which you are connected to Jesus Christ, the source of all spiritual life. If you don't get that, Christian life will be a very unrewarding and exhausting experience, and towards the end you'll say, I don't care enough about it to keep faking it. Many people in my age group have gotten to that point in their lives. They've stopped trying to pretend this matters to them. They're content with what they've made of their lives. I'm telling you that that's exactly where we'll all end up if we believe that Christian life is the product of effort alone. A branch that bears no spiritual fruit is a branch that has somewhere become seriously disconnected from the source of life. And so Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, God, the gardener, takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That first part has been weaponized by many people in the church. It shouldn't be. The gathering up of those fruitless branches it's not so much a punitive thing. It's simply this. The enterprise of a vineyard is to produce living, living plants that make fruit. And any branch that is not making fruit is disconnected from the vine. It's not a part of that plant. It is driftwood. It is somehow not a part of the enterprise. It's not so much that the reason they're being gathered is because they're fruitless, but because they're disconnected. They were never a part of this thing to begin with. We have to be careful how we understand and apply this part of the verse because we don't want to create the picture that God is just going, you stink, you're out of here. It's not about that. It's saying if fruit bearing is not the result of your efforts, 
but of connection to the vine, then what he's looking for is, is there a sign you're actually rooted to Jesus? That your claims to be a Christian are not just about an event somewhere in your history, but about a reality that still is a part of your life right now. It's not trying to prove that I'm something. It's simply to be that thing. And he's, the, the fruit is the visible manifestation of that inward reality. And so he says, at the end of all things, those branches that were disconnected from the vine sitting on the ground are going to be gathered, taken away. Do you know that even a branch loaded with good fruit, if you cut it off from the vine and drop it on the ground, looks like this after a little while. It doesn't matter that it already bore the fruit, that it was once vibrant and alive, cut off from the trunk line, it will die. It won't produce the fruit that the the vine dresser is looking for. So that's the moral of that part of it is it's not so much punitive, but it's simply this. Those who are not a part of this plant are not a part of this plant. And the proof, the evidence of belonging to that plant or not is in the fruit that we bear, which is the irrepressible consequence of being connected to Jesus. But he also says another very important thing. He says those that are bearing fruit are not spared the knife either. If you already are bearing fruit, and by the way, just show of hands, how many of you are raising fruit-bearing plants or trees right now on your property? Okay, so this is really relevant to you. I'm not doing it now, but when I was growing up, my parents had a huge property, and there were all these fruit trees, pear trees, cherry trees, apple trees on our, our property. And I used to love picking up the apples off and just eating them off the tree and then throwing them at people. It's just how I'm wired. Here's the thing about a fruit tree. The, the branches that are bearing lots of fruit actually have to be cut in parts. Because in a plant, all growth costs something. Every twig, every centimeter of twig that grows, every flower, every leaf that grows is not magic. It is the result of drawing something, some nutrient, some carbon molecules from the ground, from the tree. It costs. All growth costs. And when the endeavor, when the enterprise is to bear fruit for a harvest, then the growth that takes away nutrients but doesn't lead to fruit production needs to be trimmed so that the parts that are bearing fruit are going to have a better chance of getting those precious nutrients diverted to that part. It's a way of saying this. God will sometimes cut away portions of our lives that are, are valid, that are growing, but are not really contributing to the great mission of our lives. It's not so much that he hates the thing he's cutting away, that he thinks it's ugly that it's evil, but that he is so obsessed with the enterprise of fruit-bearing. He is so committed to the advance of his kingship in this world, of multiplying his image throughout the world in us. He's so committed to that, to fill this world with godliness rather than what it's filled with right now. And he's so committed to it that he will lovingly prune away the parts of our lives that are diverting Precious nutrients away. It's a way of saying every second and every cent that we, say, we spend on something cannot be spent on any other thing. 
Please don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean we want dour people who don't have any fun. You guys know I'm an Enneagram 7. Without fun, I die. I can't survive without it. I need it. And I'm going to say to you that the picture of Christ is not a joyless, no fun, all work kingdom. But what he's saying is it's not so much a rejection of those things or of the world. It's such an obsessive commitment to his good kingdom that he will redirect as much as he can to that great enterprise. When we have a good obsession, that's what happens automatically. You guys know that a couple years ago, uh, thanks to the influence of our own Debbie Choi, I slowly became something like an artist. I hesitate to use that word because it's an insult to other artists, but I fell in love with art, and it's become, my family will tell you, it's my undisputed passion. I now take this app called Fetch, and I photograph and record every receipt because for every 3,000 fetch points, I get $3 of Amazon gift cards. That's how I stay in art supplies. I obsessively track all these receipts to get a few bucks so that I could buy more art supplies. Everything I buy now, I'm thinking, oh, that could have been another watercolor pencil set. That could have been another this. When you have a healthy obsession, it's not that you hate everything else. You love this so much, you're anxious to redirect every resource to bear on the thing which most that you care about. That's what God's doing. He's not saying that he wants nothing of the rest of life in us. But what he's saying is if you already care about the things he cares about, he will lovingly cut away the stuff that will keep you from being fully engaged with that because he wants to celebrate that happening in your life. It's a sign of Christian maturity then that we voluntarily join God in this pruning process. Not because we hate all the things in the world, but because we so love the things that matter to God. Have you noticed that some of the most spiritual people you meet, some of the people who are on the front lines doing the most incredible things to God, and never mind just godly people for that, that, for that matter, even people who are at the front lines of business success or athletic success, people who are at the top of whatever they're doing, when you interview them, listen to them interview in podcasts, and they say, oh, so did you watch the last season of Game of Thrones? And they'll go, I don't know what that is. How do you not know what that is? What cave are you living in? You realize the people who have this obsessive commitment to something meaningful have very little engagement with superfluous things. Not because they're nerds or because they're, they're boring, but because they're obsessively committed to something that matters so much to them. I see this across the board in some of the most fruitful, productive kingdom workers as well as some of the most successful human beings outside of the church. There is this focused obsession where everything else is rechanneled so that I can continue to pursue the thing that matters most supremely to me. I'll bet you in your own life right now, you see elements of this happening, don't you? There are things that you are willing to sacrifice so that this thing can happen in your life. I do it too. And the point of all this is that when we are growing in love with and commitment to the things that matter to God, we will voluntarily participate in the pruning process. I really admire those friends of mine who watch very little television. 
I'm still not sure how they do it because it's such an important part of my life to hear the stories, to see these things. It's so important to me, and I wish it wasn't, but it just is. And I really admire those who are able to just go, you know what, I don't really want to watch all that because every hour I spend on that, I'd rather be spending on something else. It's something I know I need to grow in. I wonder about you as well. Are you participating voluntarily in the process of pruning in your life? Let me close this way. Jesus, throughout this whole teaching, never explicitly says what this fruit is. He never explicitly describes what it is. So you center an entire teaching around bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit, and yet he never comes right out and says, this is what the fruit is. And so scholars and commentary writers throughout the years have made all kinds of guesses at what that fruit is. Is it people you lead to Christ? Is it ministries you build? Is it, what is it? Is it things you make for God? Is it a character trait or a change within you? What exactly is the fruit? I think it is reductionist to try to nail down this fruit to one thing. Maybe it's the fruit of the Spirit. This miraculous internal change in a person's character. Maybe it is this church we're all building together that one day when we're done with this life, we will show him this is what we labored and sacrificed for to bring glory to you in this world. Maybe it's all the people we have led to Jesus Christ, the people we've served and loved in Jesus' name. But maybe it's all those things. I think perhaps Jesus said it best on a Sermon on the Mount when he said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's not just a thing or two, but it's the whole life that's produced. When Jesus Christ rules in our hearts. I don't think Jesus wants us to live our lives trying to prove something to the eyes of other people around us. I don't think any of us want to live that way. But he is watching us. Like a father, his eyes are on us. He yearns to delight over what he sees us becoming. Anyone who's ever had a child, who's raised a child has hopes for that child. Has longings, plans, desires. We delight when our children flourish. We grieve when they're going through hard times. What we long most to see in them is that deep flourishing that exhibits the very best that we try to pour in. What Jesus is saying is that it matters tremendously to God to see in us the whole life that's produced when we're deeply connected to Jesus Christ. You can't reduce it to one dimension or another, one list of traits or another. It's everything, the whole life. It's not the life 
we produce for Him. But it's the life that He produces in us. And in this verse, He reveals that we know it's that kind of life, that kind of fruit. When people see us and experience us, and they want to worship and praise God and not us. That doesn't mean we're invisible, we're not a part of it. We are. They will say, thank you, I appreciate you, I admire you. But in the end, our lives touching their lives makes them want to touch the life of God. Is that the effect we're having on the people we care about the most? I've got to say this one last thing because it's too important to leave out. It's so easy to hear the teaching of the vine and the branches on an entirely individual basis. How am I doing? Am I connected? Is this my experience? I think we should start there for sure. But do you know that every time the word you appears in this passage, it's the plural you. If we're in the South, we, Jesus would be saying, y'all, you guys. He's not just talking to each individual. He's talking to all of us. And what he's saying is all of you branches connected to me, we together are the whole plant. Your fruitfulness or your fruitlessness doesn't just affect your standing with God. It affects the whole thing. The temperature, the character of an entire church. In fact, the temperature or character of an entire religious movement is really the result of individual branches choosing to connect or disconnect from the only one who calls us together. How you and I choose to live our individual lives in Christ produces a result that affects and belongs to all of us and to Him. What, what harvest is, is not external to you. What we accomplish, what we stand for in this community, in this world, is not external to you or in spite of you. It is directly a result of all of us making a choice about where to root ourselves. And so whatever anyone will say about harvest, he's saying about you and me and all of us. If we each decide to remain firmly rooted in Jesus, and if we as a whole church make that same commitment, I think it'll be our great joy to participate in God's great project of redeeming this broken, lost, messed up world, and of making Him visible in all the places that we should see Him not the brokenness around us. I want to ask you to bow with me in just a word of prayer and take just a few minutes with this. Uh, By some miracle, we're... I finished a little early, so... I want to ask you to sit with this for a minute. Don't worry about what other people can see or not see in you the little comments of unthinking, uncaring people who've said something to you in passing. Shut all that out for a moment. 
What do you see in your own life right now? Each life is producing something. What is your life producing? In other words, what does it reveal? Has it been a while since you felt deeply, vitally connected to Jesus? Well, I'm not going to tell you you can go out there and make yourself get there. But don't rest until God brings you there. Ask Him. It's a prayer that He loves to answer. Just say it over and over. God, I, I want to have that kind of connection with you. The kind that just makes things happen inside of me. I want to produce the whole life that results when my heart is dominated by Jesus. I think that's a prayer God will answer and joyfully if we lift it up. So why don't we just take a moment and sit before God with this. Respond to Him the way you feel led to right now. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.